Hi everyone and welcome to episode 65 of the One Mind Meditation Podcast. My name is Morgan Dix and this is a show about meditation, mindfulness, and health. And this is part one of a two-part interview about mindfulness and pregnancy. So in this two-part interview, we have a fascinating conversation with longtime meditation practitioner Atra Nusrat. But first, before we jump into the show, I just want to remind our listeners that we are part of the Podcastica Podcast Network. This is a fantastic network of different shows and podcasts. I encourage you to check it out. You can go check out Podcastica over at podcastica.com. Podcastica.com. Check it out. Okay, back to our show. So this is a great two-part interview with, drumroll please, my wife. And she started meditating herself over 23 years ago. And recently, Atra gave birth to our first child, a little beautiful girl named Alia. So this two-part interview is an exploration of mindful pregnancy. What is it and why is it important? So in part one of the interview today, we explore Atra's own spiritual background, which is really the bedrock of her mindfulness practice. And then in part two next week, we really get into the nitty gritty of what it means to strive for a mindful relationship to that stress that one experiences during the upheaval, which is pregnancy. And we talk about the three different stages of pregnancy. We we talk about being pregnant, then we talk about the childbirth itself, and then postpartum. And we really look at mindfulness in the context of those three stages of pregnancy. So this interview is a lot of fun. I hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, here's my interview with Atra Nozrat. Atra, welcome to the show. Obviously, very happy to have you on here. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. So everyone, I almost never call Atra by her first name. I call her all manners of things, but definitely not her first name. That only happens in this household on very formal occasions. We we don't use first names. It's not a good sign usually when we use first names. <laughs> but in this case, it's a really good sign. So welcome. Thank you. All right. So what we're going to talk about today is mindfulness and pregnancy. What is mindful pregnancy? That's what we're going to talk about. And I couldn't really think of anyone better to talk to about this than my wife, Atra, because we're brand new parents. So we're on this journey. It's really new. But we, while Atra was pregnant, we had this idea. We were like, oh man, wouldn't it be a great idea to do a podcast about our approach to together having a baby and in particular you being pregnant and there's a lot of there's a lot of a stress in particular associated with being pregnant and that's something that we've talked about and we thought it would be useful because we know a lot of listeners of this podcast fit in the age range of having children and a lot of the listeners of the podcast skew towards women. So we thought, hey, why not? This is this would be a really interesting topic. It's obviously completely relevant to us. So that everyone is the context for 
this show. And um, in particular, when we did a little bit of research on it and we just looked and compared it to our own experience, we're like, really, stress is such a huge issue. It's such a massive life transformation, particularly ma, the mom, new mom, but also the family. And uh, yeah, so we're going to talk about that. And before we do, I'm going to stop talking here in a sec. Before we do, what I thought would be the best way to start at is just let's talk about your history with meditation more generally and, and mindfulness, but really your relationship to spirit and spirituality and spiritual practice because you have a very in-depth history, definitely longer than mine in terms of a formal relationship to spirit and because you have more of a religious background than I do. And yeah, maybe it'd be great if you could just share your story with everyone, help people understand your own relationship to mindfulness in your, in your own background. Well, that's a 42-year trajectory. Yeah. <laughs> so I think first thing to say is that I was raised a Muslim in a Muslim household in the UK. Mm -hmm. I had two older brothers, a younger sister. We were all raised as moderate Muslims. Uh, my parents were both practicing but it was pretty, pretty laid back. I mean, basically, if our listeners know anything about it, Islam in relationship to some of the formal practices, we fasted every year during the month of Ramadan. We prayed namaz. And again, you know, as I was growing up, it wasn't that much. It was like, you know, if you manage to get five prayers in one day, you've got a gold star kind of thing. So that happened on rare occasions. And for, for everyone who's listening, what are the namaz? That's a prayer, the, like the regular Muslim prayer that um, Muslims pray five times a day. So you may have seen it on TV where uh, it's like a salutation, a prostration, and it's, yeah, it's it's our form of prayer. Yeah. So I would say, you know, as, as moderate family, we were pretty much middle, straight down the line. Um, I was probably more interested than my siblings just to kind of understand it a little bit more for myself at a young age. I guess I was always a bit of a good student, a bit of a goody two-shoes as well. So I would, you know, do the readings. Mm. We had a teacher, yes. Things don't change. <laughs> we had a teacher that my mom kind of had come and visit us at home and helped us recite the Quran. One of, one of our teachers was actually a wonderful guy. And um, he started to teach us Arabic as well, which I found illuminating because it seemed like he wanted us to understand it firsthand. Yeah. And um, having the basics of Arabic was amazing. I mean, we didn't get very far, and unfortunately, we didn't have him for that long. Yeah. But um, I think that was a way for me to kind of appreciate what it could mean to understand it. At a, uh, I mean, again, I was a, at a very young age, but not just reciting actually having a bit more of a first-hand relationship with what the Quran was actually telling us. Right. Now, well, we one, didn't... We didn't I have a question, two questions, mm -hmm. but so you didn't speak Arabic. What language did you speak at home? And, and also, what is the significance of learning Arabic with respect to the Quran? Why did that give you more of a, a direct relationship to uh, the essence or the spirit of the tradition so my parents speak urdu and uh, we 
we spoke English and Urdu at home, basically, but yeah. we didn't speak Arabic. So I didn't understand Arabic. And the Quran is written in Arabic. So only Arabs or Arab speaking people will understand it directly firsthand. Anybody else is going to have to read a translation. Got so it. we would read translations. But I think this particular teacher was called, uh, they're called Mulana. That's the, the name of the, mm. the teacher. He thought, you know, for the long term, if we could understand Arabic as a language itself, then our interpretation of the Quran would be much deeper because we direct. Now, that, that was the premise. I mean, we never got there. I don't know how to read Arabic at this point. And unfortunately, we only had him for a short amount of time. But mm. I think the significance was that him just even doing that opened up the possibility of having a more direct relationship with the teachings as opposed to just reciting them in a rote kind of fashion, which is what some of our other teachers, we only had two actually, the other teacher, he was much more dogmatic and just, you know, just recite it. That's what you're supposed to do. And there is obviously a lot of, there is benefit in that too. And um, maybe just jumping ahead a little bit, coming back, you know, 40 odd years later, I do find just the act of reciting the Quran, and maybe it's because it's so deeply embedded at me at this point, there is something spiritual about that in and of itself. Right. Um, I don't know if spiritual is the right word, but it's um, it bypasses the mind, and there is something enchanting, some, um, the, the, the actual words, right. which I find creates a certain space in me so that i think there is value in the chanting independent of whether you understand that or not more because i think of the context that you're reciting in which is you are putting yourself in a context of openness towards spirit and so i think where it's coming from your own intention is probably creating that more than what you're actually saying so when you talk about this space that it puts mm -hmm. you in chanting the quran can you you were just starting to get into that can you just say a little bit more about that because i think that's gonna we're gonna circle around to that more yeah i mean i'm sure there are layers to that because one obviously I, that was something very familiar to me from when i was a child mm. uh, growing up and relating that to a religious context so to me that was obviously a connection to god as mm. i was taught so that was probably the ground but i think circling back 20 or 40 odd years later having had a lot of other kind of direct contact with spirit in my experience and i'm sure we can come talk about that a bit more yeah it's not limited to just familiarity through conditioning it's actually in a certain way taking on a, a, a deeper meaning because i think i've cultivated a certain ground in relationship to spiritual experience and spirit itself mm. that I feel is very core to me. And so in reading the Quran and reciting, I feel as though that taps into that or I tap into that kind of space. Yeah, which isn't to do with any kind of intellectual capacity. It, it, it is definitely very heart opening. So I mm. think that's how I relate to it. Mm. So that space, if you were to describe it, is uh, a space of open heartedness and anything else? Vulnerability, I think a devotion, I think um, reverence, mm. um, um, a submission in the sense of submission to something greater than yourselves. And 
kind of like an acknowledgement that something greater than you, which is God, spirit, whatever you want to call it, consciousness, exists, and that you are, are connected to that and can be connected to that as you put your attention on it. Hmm. Cool. All right. So back to back to the storyline. So you were telling us about, before I, I kind of asked you the question, you were kind of mm -hmm. telling us about, all right, so you learned Arabic and, and that kind of deepened. There was a reason he taught you that and, and, that, and that's where we were in the storyline. Well, I, so I guess I was thinking that I think I expressed a little bit more interest in our religious teaching yeah. than perhaps my siblings at that time. And then I think for myself, I probably pursued it a little bit more. I've written about this. One of my first spiritual experiences, I guess, was when I was a kid. Um, I started reading about the life of the Prophet Muhammad or, or, you know, out of my own initiative. I just wanted to understand a bit more of, you know, who our Prophet was. And I remember reading a little, little bit about his life story. You know, he was out in the deserts of Arabia at the time, etc. And I was remember trying to imagine what it would be like if you were living it at that time and somebody came to your tribe, your people, and said there is a different way, there's a there's a different spiritual path that contradicted what you had been raised with and your ancestors had been telling you or passed on basically. And how that would be such a challenge to actually step out of what your status quo was and subscribe to a completely different paradigm from mm. this stranger that was bringing this news. Right. And the thing with the message of Islam is that the Prophet Muhammad, in um, the Sunni Muslim tradition, which I'm from, says that he was basically the last prophet. And this is in the line of the Abrahamic religion. So you had, you know, Jesus Christ is recognized, Moses is recognized. There's a whole line of prophets which are recognized, but Muhammad was deemed to be the last one. And um, I remember thinking, well, if somebody else was to come now, how would I relate to that? If these people at the time that Muhammad came to them was giving them a different message based on their cultural kind of traditions. And I remember it shattered something in my kind of little small worldview of mm. thinking, well, I'm contemplating something which is effectively against my religion to think that maybe somebody else could come now, given that the, the scriptures, the, the literature, the Quran, etc., says he's the last prophet. Right. And at that time, at that moment, I think because I was contemplating something which was outside of the box, as I say, um, it kind of opened up my unconsciousness in a certain way, which I totally felt at the time. And I think I must have been about 11 or 12 years old or something mm. like that, maybe a bit older. Mm. But in reading that, I literally felt a certain kind of connection which was outside of me. And it's almost as if this particular questioning had opened a channel up, which wouldn't have happened if I hadn't questioned in that way. Right. Because, um, yeah, it was stepping outside of my given frame of reference and trying to connect with something which was apparently not possible. <laughs> yeah, right. So I, I always remember that as a very, well, it's a very significant moment actually in my spiritual development because 
something real happened for me then at that moment where I felt there's something real here, which I just connected to, which is bigger than me, and which somehow seemed to recognize, <laughs> it may sound hokey, but it seemed to recognize that I had stepped beyond my own philosophical boundaries in relationship to what I thought was true and real and spiritual, I guess. Mm. Uh, uh, so I, yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I mean, I think that was really one of the first moments in terms of how my interest in spirit just went from one stage to another. Mm. I, mean, I guess there is more more than that, but I, I kind of feel as though that was probably the most significant as a young as a young girl to want to pursue my own interest in spirit outside of just following what I was taught. I guess. Right. And and of course, that would have been at least one significant stepping stone to the context in which you and I met, which was yes. living and practicing in a spiritual ashram or, a, or an international spiritual community where we did, where we meditated every day. We did different spiritual practices. By the time I got involved with it, you had already been involved with it for like and I think like six years, five or six years. Yeah. But yeah, maybe just, just take us forward. So I think after that, you know, my curiosity was that kind of it was opened up more than just only strictly following what I was reading. But I was, like I said, I was, I was a bit of a goody two-shoes, and I think I always have been. So I like doing things by the book as well. So I continued reading within and practicing in such a way that, you know, was part of the mold. Um, but I also started, I remember opening up the Encyclopedia Britannica and just finding a whole passage about the self. So this would be from a about Buddhist the, perspective. About the what? Which, the self, as in the self with a capital S. Mm. And um, it was talking about mind and it's talking about relationship to mind and thought and feeling. And that was a huge eye-opener for me because it was relating to the human experience in a spiritual context in relationship to self and consciousness, which I found like amazingly refreshing and also kind of like it was nothing I was coming across in how I was being taught and reading the Quran and understanding Islam. It was to me, it was like this is a direct experience of what it means to be a human being and understanding how a human being works from the inside out. So I felt very compelled by that and also felt I'm not finding that currently through my route through at least the way that I am being taught Islam. Hmm. So I think that was the beginning of a, of a departure away from following just the, the strict, not even the strict, but just our way of practicing religion. Right. I think right. it broadened it for me. So then I started exploring things a little bit like Krishnamurti, and then I went to university, and then I was interested in a few other things. Hmm. And then I think before I went to university, my, my brother actually introduced me to a friend of his who was also exploring other spiritual paths, and he was interested in meditation and retreats, etc. and he introduced my brother to that. My brother introduced me to it, and this is at the tender age of 19, 18, yeah, 19. Yeah. And I, I read some of these, these books from this um, other spiritual lineage, which had a the roots in Advaita Vedanta is, is, a, is a, obviously a different approach to spirit. And again, it just resonated with me. So I just, from the age of 19, continued to pursue that. I, it didn't displace my affinity and love for Islam as a very core kind of 
backbone, I guess, to my relationship to spirit because that's I know has always sustained me at some level because there's there's part of the pillars of Islam. I mean, it's not a pillar as such, but is that there's no there's nobody between you and God. Like with I know with other religions, you know, you have to go through like Jesus Christ, etc. But for uh, but you don't have to go through Muhammad to have access to spirit as God. You and your creator have a direct relationship. So that to me always I felt was a ground for me throughout my whole 20 years of going through a different spiritual lineage right. tradition with meditation and the Eastern Enlightenment, right. you know, based on the teachings of Buddha, etc., which, you know, that's how you and I met through that. Yeah. But this, this kind of core or ground, which I guess I come into with my family, but then pursued a little bit more independently as a young person, but then left to to pursue meditation in Eastern Lightning, which I felt had a more direct experiential quality to it than believing in and having faith through Islam. Right. Um, it, it still, it was, a, it was a backbone for me because it, it indicates you always have a one-to-one and direct relationship with God. Yeah. My relationship with meditation and the spiritual enlightenment teachings that we went through still exist in that context. So you think it didn't displace it. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Definitely. It kind of recontextualized it. Like, oh, this is one way of having a direct relationship with God. Yeah. And it was, yeah, as you know, as we know, we actually had very profound and real spiritual experiences, which I, you know, hold fast to which came out of my experience through meditation, not through my initial teaching through Islam. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And just for for context, again, for our audience, if you were to say a little bit more, can you just speak about some of the spiritual practices that you did at Enlightenext in our, in our MOU, like primarily yeah. meditation and the prostrations and and maybe just a little bit about you, you know your own yes. with respect to those two practices your key or central insights or discoveries in relationship to those so okay so there's the two so there's prostrations you mentioned in meditation so if i just quickly touch on prostrations yeah. first that was a powerful practice in that we did 600 prostrations a day for a while in the mornings. It was the first thing you did when you got up in the morning. Hmm. And I think the main thing was that it taught you a kind of strength of mind in relationship to whatever you happened to be experiencing, right. whether you wanted to do it, whether you didn't want to do it, whether you felt energetic, whether you were completely tired. Um, it built a certain discipline in relationship to that, yeah. that you'd made a commitment to do a practice. Yeah. And um, you had to fight all your internal inertia and resistance and disinterest, as it was at the time in the morning, to do that. So that really builds something inside you. Hmm. And, and then obviously doing the actual prostrations themselves maintaining your attention and because we also recited a chant with each prostration being able to keep your attention on that and every time you really gave yourself to it you felt that um it cleared a lot of space inside yourself and you saw 
how married we are to our thought stream and how embedded we are in our thought stream and enslaved we are to our thought stream. Right. I think it's a very powerful practice to, to make that distinction because independent of what's going on through your mind, if you've made this commitment to do 600 prostrations, you do them. And so physically you go through this whole act and your mind can be going completely crazy inside you, but you can still do it. So right. that's a very powerful practice yeah. to, to do that. Yeah. I, I and then, and just to kind of back you up on that, I think for me, I, and I only usually did prostrations on our like longer 10 day silent retreats. I, I never quite had the in-depth prostration practice that you had, but I, always remember sort of being floored by the the kind of quality of surrender mm. that you could experience through prostrations that was so much different than meditation it was different than chanting it was i guess partly because it was physical yeah and the and the the chant that you were saying somehow melded with the action and the, and the repetition, because it felt like there's some sort of entrainment there yeah. that I could just, like you were saying, and you really, I think, like articulated it beautifully. There was a way in which like you would, like the arc of every prostration session was very similar in that you, you inevitably had to practice some sort of powerful renunciation of your own mind because mm. you're just going to encounter resistance in one form or another because it's, yeah. it's physically arduous and mm -hmm. repetitive and yeah uh, i just do remember like a couple times just exulting in, in in doing the prostrations and renouncing my mind and in, in a certain way with other people on both sides of yes. me in the yeah. in the really early hours of the morning and experiencing yeah. a kind of quality of inner and outer beauty where everything mm. just sort of seemed almost sublime where i i just felt I was almost carried away in the practice, forgetting myself and, and just feeling overwhelming gratitude for like the chant and the, and the, and the uh, yeah, just the release into the practice. I'd never had experiences like that before and they were really pretty magical. It's hmm. spoken about them for a long time. Yeah. But um, yeah, no, the everything you said is like just being together with, you know, your brothers or you, you know your sisters in practice, and just the the sounds the, the, in the silence of each person kind of going down on frustration, and it just you, that kind of environment, that space. Hmm. And I was also thinking, as you were saying, because uh, there's a period of time that I did, and this was not uncommon, did a lot more than 600 a day. I think for almost two years I was doing 1,000 a day, which was huge. Huge. But, um, but there was something about, and again, it, you know, whether it was 600 or 1,000, the sense of victory that you'd have at the end of those mm. you know, every single day mm. was, it was always 
rewarding to to come out with a sense of victory of having done it because it's yeah. almost as if you you go in every day not knowing if you can do it <laughs> that day yeah and then coming out and having done it it's like first thing in the morning you do that and you you kind of you've built something in yourself yeah that kind of carries you through the day it's like starting every day with a marathon mm. yeah mm. and it's interesting because Doing prostrations in some way was almost easier than meditating mm -hmm. because of, I think of what you said, because there's a physical component to it that you actually have to, you give yourself to, you do it, you put your whole self through that motion. Yeah. Um, yes. Whereas with meditation, you know, there's a certain attention and effort that you have to apply without that physical support, basically. Right. So you're building a, a another kind of, muscle in yourself which doesn't have a crutch of yeah. the physical dimension right they're both practices to like train your attention but yeah mm -hmm. i like the way you said it that the prostration is almost like there's a little bit with the physicality there's more of an anchor for your attention mm -hmm. in that practice because mm -hmm. it does i think as you were saying that i realized i was like right Because what we're talking about today is, and what we're going to get into the main meat of the interview is talking about mindfulness and pregnancy. But when you're, as you were describing it, you were really just discussing, all right, these are the building blocks when you do stuff like this. These are the building blocks of building your capacity for mindfulness. And as mm. you were describing the the practice, the cha the whole challenge is keeping your attention on what you're doing. Mm. instead of drifting away into your rage, your resentment, your kind of doubt, your like all the, mm. all the, whatever form your inertia was taking, I really got that yeah. hit, you know, and those are the things that take you away from being here right now in the practice, just doing the practice. And yeah. that is the practice too, is mm. coming back from that resistance. Cause it, that's just, that is also part of the practice, mm. but I, I thought it was it was helpful now just to draw the distinction for everyone. Part of what we're doing in spiritual community and spiritual practice, both alone and together, is exactly this. We're always you're always building your capacity for mindfulness. You're always developing your attentional uh, strength to be able to to pay more fully and more refined attention right now to whatever it is you're doing. Yeah. And uh, for me, that came through really clearly while you were talking mm. about it. And also then just to um, relate that to the meditation practice yes, itself. Yes, sorry, go ahead. Well, because I'm thinking of, in terms of the sense of victory that you'd have when you yeah. came out of prostrations. I, I think my sense of victory after coming off meditation retreats was more powerful I, for that reason that mm. we just you know covered that because you have less of a crutch it's more you're developing your own inner muscle to really train your attention and train yourself to kind of in a certain way be disciplined mm. but also really allow yourself to fall into it as well yeah and um and i think for me so while I've been meditating for 20 years now, more or less since I, I started um, 
meditation practice with Enlightened Nicks when I was like 19. Well, more, 25 um, years. So, see, you started in 1992 or 93? I think around 92, yeah. I mean, I first came across Enlightened Next. I, I came across it in 92, but I I really started getting involved myself in 93. Yeah, so, so that was 23 years ago. That was 23 years ago. Um, but I, I guess for me, yeah, so over those 23 years, and again, we've spoken about this in terms of the kind of level of support in the spiritual practice through Enlightened Next, I think because we were doing free awareness, that's like jumping in the pool at the deep end when you can't swim, right? Yeah. Um, right. So it was not an easy practice to just dive into when you've never had any experience of meditation. Yeah. And um, when you had a victory, it was a powerful victory because you felt, I can do this. I right. can do this. Right. Now, I might, I might not manage it nine times out of ten, but that last tenth time shows it's possible and I can do it. And each time that happened, it built upon, you know, each previous victory. Yeah. And I think just that, that conviction and that victory in each kind of retreat, whatever context it was, that has been more powerful an anchor for me throughout the years than, you know, whatever else I went through, I guess, in terms of doing prostrations and because I think, you know, mm. you really you really make it happen. Mm. And then I think, you know, circling back a little bit to what I was saying about my relationship to Islam, where it's there's nobody between you and God. Right. I think that's the closest you come to that. Nobody can take that away from you. You did it. You broke through whatever you needed to break through in yourself. And um, you ex you come into contact with something. You experience something. You have, you, have your, you have conviction in your own capacity to free yourself from your own mind and mm. actually... Mm. To free your own consciousness, it's in your hands. And I think it's in the meditation retreats that you know we've been on, and whether it's been an individual retreat or together with other people, those are the most powerful moments, I think, that I, I feel that I benefited from. Hmm. Nice. All right. Well, maybe we should segue now into the... So that was what, so we left there about three years ago. So mm -hmm. fast forward and... Here we are, and we're six weeks into, almost six weeks into being parents. Mm. And before you gave birth, everyone, Atra and I had this conversation. We were thinking, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we should, originally we thought, let's do a guided meditation for, for pregnancy. And then we, we were like discussing this the other day, and then it just kind of became clear. It'd be much more interesting, at least at the moment, to just talk about mindfulness and pregnancy and mindfulness and parenting. And this may end up being kind of a series of shows at some point, but for now we thought, okay, let's just, let's talk about it. And we had outlined some points. This was before after I gave birth. So yeah, maybe we could start talking about some of the different dimensions of what it means to have a mindful relationship to being pregnant because I think that'd be super interesting in the context we talk about at the beginning which is that stress is a huge part of being pregnant and I hope you enjoyed my interview with Atra Nazrat. You can check out Atra's blog by heading over to the show notes at aboutmeditation.com forward slash podcast 
and look for episode 65. You can also connect with her directly through her website. And I'll say it quickly here. It's evolvability.org, but I'm going to link that up in the show notes and make it easy for you to get to. Again, that's over at aboutmeditation.com forward slash podcast episode 65. And while you're over there, don't forget to pick up our free Meditation for Life guided meditations and three-part seminar. Super helpful resources for new meditators. Just visit aboutmeditation.com. And if you're a regular listener to our show and you want to support us, really the best way to help other meditators discover our show is by leaving us a star rating and a review I would love to know what you think of the show. Please tell me. What do you like? And uh, your feedback is super helpful. And please feel free to to, uh, also let me know if you'd like me to cover different people or different topics. And you can do that over at aboutmeditation.com forward slash iTunes. Again, just one last plug. Don't miss next week's show where Atra really shares her own experience of mindful pregnancy. And and then let's end with a quote. And this one is from the Tibetan Buddhist master, Mingyur Rinpoche. And he says, Whatever you experience, when you simply rest your attention on whatever's going on in your mind at any given moment, is meditation. Whatever you experience when you simply rest your attention on whatever's going on in your mind at any given moment is meditation.